Hi, church. It's good to be here. As Kevin said, I'm Simon. If not met you before, it's really good to see you this morning. I just wanted to start off by um, uh, saying something that struck me as we were uh, stood here earlier today, and that's that God really loves mathematicians. If you're wondering where that's coming from, it's because he's got a sense of humor, and they're just so easy to laugh at. A couple of examples of that. um, The the, the first one is that there are 10,000 troops gathered in the Old Testament, ready to do a mighty work for God, and he sends away 9,700 of them and takes just 300 to invade um, and take on the enemy. When he's, not, he's, he's not very good when it comes to numbers that are to do with money either. There's a really rich guy who goes to put his offering in the collection kind of thing in, in, in the temple. He's chucking in gold coins. He's taking off ornate rings with diamonds and chucking them in. And there's a widow who t- puts in a tiny mite And Jesus says that that's more money than the rest. I don't know whether you've ever thought about how many people Jesus preached to in person when he was on the earth over those three years or so. Um, My guess is it's got to be numbering in the hundreds of thousands. Um, We see towards the end of today's um, uh, uh, talk that on the day of Pentecost, at least 3,000 people gathered on that one day to listen to Peter. So we knew that big crowds were possible. Sermon on the Mount, there's probably a lot of people there. There are times where Jesus is pushed back into a boat on the sea to be able to talk because there's so many people in front of him. But do you know how many he spent most of his time with? We see at the day of Pentecost, there's 120 in the room. We see today that there's a time when he sends out 72 to go and do his work. But most of the time, he spent time with 12 people. And the theme for today, as it has been this entire series, is discipleship. Jesus spent three years, yes, preaching to many, doing miracles, signs of power, healing the sick, Restoring sight to the blind and amazing things to fulfill the scriptures and show what God's character is. But largely, he spent time with 12 people. At times, that number got even smaller. We see today that he took three of his closest followers up to the top of a mountain to see him with Moses and Elijah. When he first is raised, there's two disciples run down to the tomb and see it at first. God's looking down today And he's not quite embarrassed, but he's looking and saying, there's a lot of people here today. If I have to use all of them, is my glory shining through? This is a lot of people to God. This is not small. This is far more people than he used to kickstart the entire church that has spread across the world because his power is behind it. Um, I wanted to start off with an illustration of what we're looking at today. If you want to go to the next slide, Olu, we're looking today at making courageous disciples. Okay, and I've put in kind of a a tagline there, which is, it's an ongoing process. That's going to come up time and time again. And as we look at at this, I wanted to come up with an illustration of courage. And then I thought, let's make them really uncomfortable. Can you think of your own example, please? Um, Ideally not from the Bible, ideally from secular life, um, from popular culture. Can you think of an example of real courage, an inspirational story of courage, and can you spend one minute just sharing it with the person next to you? And there is a point to this, other than giving me time to think. Okay, if you haven't shared it with someone, just keep what you thought of in your head, and I'm going to refer to it later. We've already seen in this series that courage 
is needed to be a disciple. Last week, Joe preached. Um, I wasn't here, but I've um, listened to it on catch-up. After I'd started preparing this, there's a bit of overlap, to be honest, but I'd encourage you to go and listen to that. He's preached about the cost of discipleship. And the first aspect of courage that I want to talk about today is the fact that it takes courage to count the cost, to know what it is, and to follow Christ anyway. That takes courage. And although a lot of today I'm going to be pointing out how if we're looking for courage and we look at the disciples, there seems to be a bit of a problem there. Maybe it seems at first like maybe they're not the best illustration of courage from what we're going to look at today. Actually, the disciples had done this. They had counted the cost at the start of those years of Jesus' ministry and they had been courageous. Why had they done that? How did they have enough courage to give up their lives? Because this came before the cross. This came before the victory. This came even before Peter has realized who Jesus is and confessed him as the Christ. They're not even sure about that. They know there's this exciting preacher, but they haven't clocked that he's actually the one who's going to save Israel, let alone the entire world. They haven't worked out that he's the Messiah. They don't know at this stage that he is the Son of God and that they should love to spend every waking minute with him. They don't know that. So why do they have the courage to leave their lives behind and follow him in the first place? We see just in the first three chapters of Luke um, the story of the nativity, the birth of Jesus and his early childhood, him going up to the temple at 12 and staying behind to talk in his father's house to all of the scribes. And we see in chapter 4 that Jesus begins his ministry. And we see that in Nazareth, he starts to preach. He says he is the fulfillment of the scriptures. He starts to teach. And significantly, he heals the sick. He releases people from demons. He heals more people. He likes repeating things, so we get the idea. He preaches a bit more, just going through verse by verse. That's what happens in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, he meets some of those that he's going to call to follow him, some of the 12. And the first thing that we see is that he asks some of the disciples in the fishing boats to try to catch some fish. And they see an amazing miracle. They realize that this man is something special. And they decide, Peter and others, decide at that point to literally leave their lives behind, leave their families behind, leave their businesses, their homes behind, and just go out on the road to follow him. They show amazing courage. But why? The top quote on here is what Peter says. When he realizes what's happened, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He realizes something about the holiness of Jesus Christ. And he realizes how far short of that he falls. And that gives him the courage somehow to leave everything behind. He realizes that something is broken. And then later on in chapter 5, Jesus calls Levi, one of those hated people who's collaborating with the enemy, making lots of money out of this situation. He calls him, and when challenged over why, he is associating himself with these people. Jesus points out that those who are well, those who are healthy, they don't need a doctor, they don't need a physician. But those who are sick 
They do. Jesus says that he's come to heal the sick. He's come to call not the righteous, but he's come to spend time with sinners, to call them to repentance. And it's out of repentance, it's Levi recognizing that he is sick spiritually. That's what gives him the courage to follow Jesus. So the first thing I want to say about courage today is that it comes out of a place of desperation sometimes. That illustration of courage I asked you to share with someone else, I wonder how many of them had someone being courageous because the alternative was just too bad to contemplate. Not being courageous would have been worse than actually standing up and doing whatever it was you thought about. Often, that is the case. Peter recognizes later on in chapter 18 that they have, the disciples, they really have left everything behind. And Jesus assures them then that that has been recognized. The disciples, I want to say at the start, they are courageous because they've spotted that stuff is wrong. I'd also like to suggest that that maybe it was easier for them to see that something was wrong than maybe it is for us today. For all that we live in a broken world, and we see pain, we see suffering, we see that stuff is not right, I think a lot of the time we can successfully hide from that and feel that things are going okay. The disciples lived in a time where their country, meant to be the chosen ones who represent God to the entire earth, is under foreign occupation. The Romans are walking around and can order them around. They're in control of everything, including the temple. There is no way that the disciples can be fooled into thinking that everything is okay. Whereas I think sometimes we are. I want to say today that if bits of your life at the moment look great, then they're not. They're all broken. Because we live on an earth that's broken, we live as people who have fallen and need to be restored. I want you to think about the things that seem to be going really, really well. Whether you've got your dream job at the moment or can see that you might be able to apply for it soon. Whether you've got an amazing family that you love spending time with. Whether you're part of a church that you love and you get so much out of and you get to serve in. Whether you've got loads of friends that you love spending time with or that actually when you look at social media you've got more likes than other people. Whether, when people ask you how you're doing, you can smugly say, I'm really busy. Or whether, equally smugly, you actually have decluttered your life against kind of the the, the current uh, tendency to be busy all the time. And, And you're feeling good about that. Wherever you are, whatever's going on, it's not okay. It's really not okay. We're living on a world that is fallen. And we're called to be part of the solution, but we need to recognize that stuff is not good because then, actually, that will help us to have the courage we need to be part of the solution. We need courage to see with God's eyes, see reality as God sees it, not to be fooled, but to realize that there is a problem. Joe said last week, 
He preached from a, a bit in this part of Luke that you can try to keep everything. You can look at all those great things you've got and you can try to keep them all. And you can think about what is the one thing you treasure the most out of all of them. And you can try to cling hold of that. Instead of treasure, you might want to use the word idolize, which is quite painful to do when these are good things we're talking about. What's the one thing you treasure most and therefore idolize the most? But if you try and keep hold of that, Joe explained, you will lose your life and therefore you'll lose that thing as well. Or you can make Jesus number one in your life, like the disciples did. Make him the most important, and then you will have life in all of its fullness. Joe talked about the idea of kind of giving a pound, putting it into your bank account, and there being a million pounds there, just magically, because that is what God's like. And that is true, and we should have courage to see Hope with God's eyes, to see things as God sees them and see amazing hope and the amazing blessing. But before we get to that good place, I just want to point out that actually you've got to be willing to lose it. I've always been attracted to to a way of thinking about this, which is that you, you, you can sit there and think, I'm willing to give away everything because you know that God is a good God. If you try to give away everything, he does give loads and loads of stuff back. And he gives, away, he gives back to you more than you've given away. But I really want to emphasize the fact that it's not just an automatic thing. You can't fool God with this. It only works, and he's gracious, and he works when we're not perfect. But it works when we're actually willing to give away what's number one in our lives, and put Jesus there instead. If you're thinking through all the things that you might be asked to give away to follow Christ more closely, and you're thinking, yeah, yeah, theoretically, I'll give it away, but I'm really hoping, I need God to give that one back to me, that, 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 that one I'm definitely getting back, then actually, you're not willing to let it go. And it may be true that Christ will give you far, far more back than you give away. But actually, we are called to have the courage to actually to to say genuinely, but if you don't, God, I'm still going to give it to you. Whatever's number one, even if it's something good that you care about, are you courageous enough to actually offer that up to God, knowing he might give you something amazing but different in its place? We saw last week that Jesus pinpointed, and three men come up to him at the end of Luke 9. One of them, Jesus says, I love your attitude, but I'm not sure you're willing to give up the creature comforts of home. And that breaks my heart. But are you prepared to not know where you're sleeping tonight? To not know whether you're getting fed tonight? To the next man, he says, no, you can't. Spend however much time it is burying your father because you need to put me number one. The third one wants to go and say goodbye to his family. That's not a bad thing. God is not there telling us all the things that we will give up. He's saying to each of those three individuals, I'm picking out for you 
Because Jesus is God. He can see into their hearts. I'm picking out the one thing that is most important to you. He's pinpointing for them and showing us the process. He's showing them what matters the most. He's saying, will you lay this on the line? He really wants them to say yes. But we get the feeling from the story that they don't. Because they've seen the cost. God's opened their eyes and they've seen the cost. Rob, when he put together this series, sent out um, uh, an article by Tim Keller that I'm just going to share a bit with. And if you've seen this already, apologies, but I really, really think it speaks to what we're looking at here. Tim Keller talks about the line um, in, in that bit of Luke, let the dead bury their own dead. And he just unpacks it a bit and say, clearly, the physically dead can't get up and actually bury someone else. Jesus can't be talking about people who are physically dead, so he must be talking about people who are spiritually dead. Okay? He's saying, if you're spiritually dead, then yeah, you, you, you go and do that thing because that's most important to you. But if you're spiritually alive, that won't be your priority. Okay? This is really hard-hitting. This is difficult. Tim Keller basically says, if you think you believe, if you think you've understood the gospel, if you think you understand what God is saying, when Jesus says, make me number one, but there's something else that is in the way, something else that you count as more important, he says, if you're thinking, soon, Lord, but not yet, just let me do this, Lord, and then I'll follow you, then what... Jesus is saying is you haven't got it at all. You have not understood the gospel. And that's difficult to hear. It's not that you're just uncommitted or lazy. It's not that your organization is somewhat lacking and you'll get round to it later. It's not that you lack the discipline but your heart is right. No, you just don't get it. You don't understand the meaning of my life and work. You need to wake up. You need to wake up spiritually and stop being spiritually dead and be spiritually alive to get this. This takes courage. It's no coincidence that in these stories in Luke, these encounters with these three men, Jesus is often saying, and they're often saying, first, let me do this. And that could mean first in time. Let me do this first, and then I'll get around to doing this. But when Jesus uses that word, he's not talking about which one you do first in the sequence. He's talking about which one is most important to you. And Jesus needs to be number one. Going to move on quickly from there and just summarize quickly what happens after he's met the disciples in chapter 5. What happens next? What happens in chapters 6, 7, and 8? And it's basically seeing and hearing. This is what happens in terms of the disciples being discipled by Jesus. Mostly, they're just observing Jesus. They're working out who he is, and in chapter 9, Peter's going to get there. They watch as he claims lordship over the Sabbath. They watch as he heals more sick people. And then teaches about this figure, the Son of Man. He then heals some more people and raises someone from the dead. They see forgiveness and grace modeled to them when a woman described as a sinful woman breaks open a jar of expensive ointments and pours it on Jesus and he says her sins are forgiven and is condemned by the Pharisees for it. 
They're immersed in lots of Jesus' teaching. In particular, after um, saying the parable of the sower and others to the big crowds, he then takes the disciples off to the side in that small group and explains his teaching to them, explains what it means. He talks through the idea of being a lamp under a jar, making no sense, but having the courage to set your light on a stand and let it shine before men. And he talks about having his mothers and brothers coming to him and saying his mothers and brothers are the people doing the will of the Father. He gives all of that to them, and basically they spend time with Jesus Christ. And that's key to discipleship. For us today, thinking about being discipled, spending time is key to this. Sitting under the teaching of Christ is key to it. And as I said, at first, he's doing this teaching to large crowds, but as time goes on, and as you work through chapter 6 into 7 to 8 to 9, he's saying things to smaller and smaller groups of people. And by the time the disciples are on a boat, this is not a massive ocean liner, this is a small fishing boat, there really are not many of them there, when a storm comes along and they show a massive lack of courage and a lack of faith that Jesus castigates them for. Why didn't you have faith to think you'd be safe despite the storm? When he calms the storm, and again, they get afraid by quite who is he? Who is this man who can do this? But luckily, discipleship is an ongoing process, hence the title at the start. Jesus doesn't give up with them. After doing all this, showing them this stuff, doing all this teaching, when they get it wrong, he doesn't give up. He carries on going, and he does that with us. So he spends more time with that group of disciples. He shows them more miracles and his power on more occasions. There's, if you just read through the next bit, there's further healings. He casts out another demon and shows them that. He heals a woman with chronic bleeding. He raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Repeating, he's doing the same sorts of things because often telling us something once is not enough. Showing us something once is not enough. He doesn't give up. He goes through discipleship more. He shows them what he's like and his power and his compassion and his care some more. And then he says, over to you. He's modeled it to them. He gives them authority to go and do it. And he sends out the 12. And this is a deliberate pattern. Because after this, he will send out the 70 or 72 um, to, to basically do the same thing. He repeats the same thing. Notice the disciples at that, this point, they are not at the end of the discipleship program. They have not heard all 20 talks in the series. They have not got the certificate yet to say that they're ready to do this. They try stuff out as part of the journey of discipleship. And if they didn't, if they waited to the end, it wouldn't work. He sends them out when they're not ready. Because being disciples, which is what we are, it's not about being perfect. It's about becoming more perfect. It's not about being the finished article. It's about getting us ready and doing those good works and moving along on that journey. The disciples then get to try, and if we hit the next slide, I think there's a little bit about this here. The disciples are then called to do this. Having been set, 
that they're called to help feed the 5,000. Jesus works in partnership with them. It's not kind of a sink or swim when you're on that own, although it looks like it at first. He says to them at first, you give this massive crowd, you give these 5,000 people, you give them something to eat. But then he actually works in partnership with them. And it's Jesus, he broke the loaves, he brought about the miracle and produced all this food, but he then gave them to the disciples and the disciples were the one to actually set all the food before the crowd. God calls us, as disciples, to work in partnership with him. Not to go off and try things on our own, but to do things alongside God. And he calls us not to try and do things on our own in an earthly way, but to go out with other people, probably other people from this church, and to try things together. It's at this point, just after this miracle, Luke's gospel changes completely. It changes from people trying to work out, the disciples trying to work out who is this Jesus, to actually a full-on, follow me. You've worked it out. You've seen with spiritual eyes. Have the courage to follow me. Because Jesus asks, who do you say I am? And Peter, whose eyes are opened spiritually by the Father replies, the Christ of God. And within a few verses, Jesus is challenging them to have courage for something hard again. Because Jesus foretells his death and tells them that they will need to take up their own cross to follow him. He lays it on the line how hard this is going to be. This is again overlapping with that cost Joe spoke about last week, but this is all about the courage they need. Okay. Straight after that, we go out to the transfiguration. And three of his closest disciples hear God the Father audibly speaking, this is my son, listen to him. They have this really close encounter. They see the glory of Christ. Their eyes have been opened. They're spiritually awake. And that means there's a decision to make. And that decision needs courage. Now they realize the truth a bit more. Are they going to keep on going? They're not quite ready yet. As I said before... Discipleship happens not when we're complete, but as a way of getting us there. So we hit the next series of headings in the gospel. I'm not going to talk through the whole text, just kind of the uh, titles at the front of each paragraph um, that people have put in to help us make sense of the Bible. So Jesus sends and the disciples go. Jesus feeds, but the disciples help give out the food. Jesus teaches and Jesus heals. Peter confesses who he is. Jesus does some more teaching. The disciples then witness the transfiguration. The disciples try to cast out a demon. Jesus is the one to succeed in casting out the demon. I hope from those headings you notice a really obvious pattern there. It goes backwards and forwards. Christ, disciples, Christ, disciples. It's deliberately intertwined. You can't just do Christ, 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 and then you're ready and you can be disciple, 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 disciple. It doesn't work like that. 
It's experience a bit of Christ and try to be his disciple. Then experience more of him and take another step of faith. And see him working and just glory in him and worship him and then take another step of faith in discipleship. We've got to do things that way. It's an ongoing process in which we can take bigger and bigger steps as we learn that we can trust in God fully. So let's focus on this bit of Luke 9. The disciples are on a real high here. Okay, just recapping. The 12 have gone out, have been given authority, and they have seen demons flee. They have, they have themselves raised the, um, healed the sick. They have preached the gospel and had people respond. They've been involved in this great miracle of feeding the 5,000. Peter has just worked out or seen who Christ is. And Jesus has said, it's because God the Father has revealed that to you, Peter. And some of them have just witnessed the transfiguration, this awesome event. But this next bit that happens, I'm not going to read through all the text here because of time. They come down from that hill to find a man saying, your disciples tried to send out the spirit for my son, but they failed. And Jesus succeeds. And at the bottom of this, we see that everyone's astonished at the majesty of God. So God is glorified, which is often his goal. But Jesus answered, faithless and twisted generation. The disciples are not perfect yet. And actually, in this whole chunk, we see lots of ways in which they are not perfect yet. They couldn't deal with the unclean spirits because they lacked faith. Straight after Peter confessing who Jesus is, you are the Christ, Jesus foretells his death, but the meaning was hidden from them. They lacked understanding they didn't get it when he said he had to die they literally just blanked it out and ignored it because they couldn't understand it in the same chapter jesus has to interrupt them because they start arguing about which of them is the greatest the disciples lack humility imagine if god heard you arguing with someone else about the fact that you were greater than them can you imagine that I realized when I was thinking about that, yeah, I can imagine that. Maybe it's just me who's that fallen, but I can think about things I say to people where I'm trying to prove how great I am. I do that as well. And they go out to a Samaritan village who reject Jesus, and the disciples say, Lord, shall we call down fire from heaven? Jesus' response is, no, you, you haven't got this grace thing, have you? You haven't understood mercy. To be honest, guys, you haven't really got the gospel yet if what you want to do is bring down fire from heaven to destroy people, especially if you're, this has happened loads of them in Israel. You've never mentioned it. And as soon as we're with the Samaritans, slightly different race, you want me to kill them. You're not really there yet. Luckily, it's an ongoing process. Luckily, in our lives, it's an ongoing process. Jesus, at this point, takes an extra year, maybe two years, but definitely an extra year. We know that because in John, he specifically says that the feeding of the 5,000 takes place at Passover. And we know the end of the Gospels happens at Passover. There's at least one, if not two more years. 
The disciples have been through a lot, but they need more of this discipleship. They need more time with Christ. They need more of his teaching. They need to see him doing miracles more, and they need to be sent to try things themselves more before they are ready, as do we. But they keep on going. They have courage to keep on going even when there are setbacks. I'm just going to skip forward briefly to look at something that happens in chapter 11, which has that same message of courage when there are setbacks. We might go off on a slight tangent here. In chapter 11, if we have a look at this bit, the disciples just before this have been taught the Lord's Prayer. They ask, how should we pray? And Jesus models how to pray to God. And then he gives us two messages, one about us and one about God, to illustrate something about praying. And for us, we see in this, the, 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 this message of a guy who needs some food. His next-door neighbor probably has food, but he's tucked up in bed in the same room as his children and his wife. He doesn't want to disturb them. Why is he going to actually get out of bed when it's cold, when, it's, when he's comfortable where he is? Because of the persistence of the person asking. And what I want to make clear here is that part of what Jesus... Is that any better? Yeah, we're good. It's just about us. That part of the parable, that bit of Jesus' teaching, is not telling us anything about God. And I think lots of people in the church, certainly myself, make this mistake. We read into this the idea that God needs to be badgered. He needs to be inconvenienced to want to help us. And God, to be fair, in writing the Bible and giving us his word, immediately says that's not the case. Immediately afterwards, he makes clear that actually the Father wants to give. He who seeks finds, the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg will give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to he who asks? The scripture makes clear immediately that that first passage where we should keep on asking does not tell us that God is slow to answer. That's not the point of it. Back to the analogy I asked you to come up with at the start about courage. If you stick your hand up, if you came up with the perfect illustration, which in every way imaginable, perfectly illustrates what we're talking about today. I doubt you did. You probably came up with something that illustrates some aspect of courage, but analogies are never perfect fits. That's kind of the point of them. If I say to my, my children that one of them has been as brave as a lion, and they object saying, but I'm not furry or I'm not yellow then they've kind of missed the point. It's not that they've understood it better than me. They've kind of missed the point. I was just saying that for this one reason. There's one aspect of it that's meant to teach me something. The same is true here. In that first bit, Jesus uses these words purely to teach us that we need to persevere in prayer. When there are setbacks, we need to keep on going. We need the courage to keep on going, which is the message of today, really. 
Please separate out in your mind those two different stories. Jesus tells two different stories to illustrate two different things there. The cycle then repeats. If we fast forward to Luke 22, Jesus has now entered triumphantly into Jerusalem. The disciples have seen him cleanse or clear the temple, take on the scribes and the Pharisees. They've heard him foretell the destruction of the temple. He's told them about wars and persecutions and how God the Father will keep them safe even in the end times. He's told them of the coming of the Son of Man at the end of history. And they've just experienced the Passover, and therefore the first Lord's Supper. And at this point, Peter is confident in his courage. He's going to be fine. I'm happy going to prison or dying for you. I won't deny you. Our courage needs to be honest. Our courage needs to be in God, not in us. God may be perfecting us, but we're not going to get there in this life. Sorry to break that news to you. You're not going to be perfect in this life. You will still get stuff wrong, as will I. The mistakes they make at this point mirror brilliantly what happened in Luke 9 earlier. They didn't understand the foretelling of the three days in the grave that Jesus just talked about. Just like they didn't understand when Jesus foretold his death straight after Peter confessed him as the Christ. They argue in Luke 22, just after the Lord's Supper, pretty much the next thing that happens is they argue again about who is the greatest. They're just making the same mistakes. They then fall asleep on the Mount of Olives when they're meant to be praying. One of them strikes out with a sword in the garden when they come to arrest Jesus, using violence, a bit like asking, should we bring down fire from heaven? And then Peter, of course, denies Jesus three times. But luckily, discipleship is an ongoing process. However badly you might think, You're doing, it's an ongoing process, and God keeps on working with these people. Because Jesus takes these ordinary, these flawed human beings, and he spent time with them in these small groups, teaching, demonstrating, doing, getting them to do, and it was the best discipleship program the world has ever known. There's no way Jesus did this in a way that wasn't perfect. But given the results at this stage, it doesn't quite make sense. This is not good theology. You'll see what, see what I'm doing here. It's almost as if Jesus needs to take a huge amount of courage to trust these disciples. Okay? Obviously, he can see what's happening. The Father reveals to him because he keeps going away and praying and spending time with his Father. He can see with God's eyes, and therefore he, has. he, he knows this is the thing to do. The disciples are still going through being taught to be disciples. They're still being discipled. And part of the program for them, given that at the death of Christ, they are so far from ready, part of the program was them witnessing the death of Jesus and his resurrection. We need to read that bit 
before we see them really succeeding much at all. And church, we need the same. Part of our discipleship is constantly going back to the cross and being reminded of Jesus' death and it's living in the power of his resurrection. If we ignore those bits, we will be as disastrous as the disciples at this point in time. Because if we fast forward to the final chapter of Luke, Luke um, 24, when Jesus speaks to them in the last few verses of the gospel, in his risen body, his resurrection body, it says, he opened their minds to understand. So one of those barriers, the fact they kept misunderstanding things, gets fixed there. He opens the scriptures to them and lets them actually understand all the things they hadn't been getting. And then in verse 49, he promises them power from on high will come and clothe them. And although this is a summer series on Luke, you kind of got to just go into the start of Acts to see where this is going. In Acts 2 verse 4, we see that all of them are filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Part of discipleship is living with the death and resurrection of Jesus, but part of discipleship is being clothed with power from the Holy Spirit, having him living inside us. The disciples need that bit Jesus just on earth isn't enough. And that was God's plan. The Holy Spirit inside them, after they've seen Jesus come back from the dead and conquer death at the cross, that was needed. It changes not just their minds in understanding, it changes their hearts. It gives them courage. It gives them a strong will. It changes their character in a good way. I don't mean that they are wiped and they become different people, but God slowly starts changing their character, emphasizing the good bits. And 10 verses later, there's a huge crowd. Thousands of people gather, and look at Peter now. The guy who went through all this discipleship and kept getting it wrong, Now he's got the Holy Spirit in him. He stands with the eleven and he lifts his voice full of courage and he addresses them. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, not, not scared to challenge them. He's got the courage to do that now. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God, though, raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. And the result of this discipleship and seeing Jesus raised from the dead and having the Holy Spirit, in that power, these same men who we've seen getting stuff wrong again and again and again, their effect on the world is now different. This crowd would cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And 3,000 that day were saved and the church begins because Jesus makes good disciples despite what we're like. Can I encourage you today to stand firm and just keep on going. Have the courage to keep on going. Have the courage to see things with God's eyes, to see it's difficult, to count the cost, but to keep on going, to pray and to keep on going, but to trust in, to have the courage to trust that God will accomplish what he set out to do.